it, Jesus will lead you through that darkness. And there is an end of the darkness in sight. There is a hope that you can latch onto because the hope of Jesus extends beyond this world. It extends beyond the point to when we perish. And our world cannot offer this. Our world cannot offer a light through the darkness. Our world cannot offer any light at the end of the tunnel. Only Jesus can. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. Good morning. If you would take your Bibles with me and turn to Mark chapter 5, please. Mark chapter 5. Um, this morning, uh, I wondered if you have ever had something in your life that has tested your limits. Uh, maybe it's your sanity limits. Uh, maybe it's your physical limits. Uh, and you've been in a situation that has just left you exhausted and tested you physically. We were at camp recently at Camp Kobiak, and they do this thing traditionally every year, apparently, that is called Water Wars. And um, they go out, and I don't know if this is every year, maybe those who've been to Kobiak before, it is every year. Um, well, at least this year, they dug out this huge pit in the ground. Um, and probably like, at least it seems to me like a half a football field long or something like that. They dig this huge pit out and they, they kind of mound it on the edges. So it's just this huge like Thunderdome bowl of mud that's basically there. And they begin to just pour a, a fire hose of water. So there's about probably two to three feet of standing water that you can stick your finger in and you can't see your finger after it goes past because it's full of mud. And so uh, I watched the teens play and they were doing a great job. I saw some of them. Basically, they throw tubes into the middle of the, of the bowl and the red team and the blue team from both sides, numbers are called out and those teens who have those numbers have to run out, try and grab the tubes in the middle and drag them to their side. And essentially, it's a no-rules game, um, but they try to forbid, you know, punching people in the face and things like that. Uh, but it gets pretty intense, as you can imagine, because you run in there and you grab a tube and you're pulling with three or four of your people on a tube one way, and there's three or four other people on a tube pulling the other direction until somebody's strength just gives out. Well, I watched our teens do this for a while, and they can go round after round after round. It was cool to see. Our teens did well. Then they announced they had given the sponsors a heads up that the sponsors, there was going to be a round where the sponsors can join the counselors and they were going to go head to head. Um, and so me, being a good youth pastor, <laughs> made sure I had swim trunks on and made sure I was ready to go and lined up. And on the red team, none of the other red team youth sponsors decided to come up. So I'm standing there, ready to go, um, with, you know, a bunch of other, like, 19, 20-year-old counselors. 
And across from me, there's a couple old guys over there that I can see. And then most of the other blue team sponsors. And so they blow the whistle and you head in. And I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm pretty athletic. Some of you have seen me maybe in soccer or different things like dodgeball, things that we've done at the church. So I bound over the lip of the bowl and I get in there and I'm one of the first ones to the tube, me and this one other red team counselor, and we start to just yank and one of the tubes pulls free. So I grab that, I go, and I score a team of points. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I go and head back in. I I bound over the, the edge of the bowl again and I get in there. All the tubes now have kind of, some have gone to the other team, some have come to our team and now there's like a, a skirmish in the middle like with three feet of standing water where there's guys just, you know, rip, trying to rip a tube away from each other. So I go in and I try and get in the mix too. So I go in, I, I grab the tube, I begin to pull and I kind of try and knock some guys another direction and we are pulling for what seems like an hour. And eventually your arms just give out. And so I, I kind of just dropped and I went, we, we kind of had pushed enough of the blue team where we kind of got that tube going the right direction. And I go and I stand there and I stand on top of the mound and I can feel my lungs just on fire. And I can feel my arm. Actually, I can't feel my arms. They're basically noodles like on my side. And I was trying my best not to show, not to like look like I was really tired to our teams. And because I was wheezing and I like, I felt like I was going to pass out. I was like, man, 30 is going to hit me hard next year. <laughs> I, <laughs> there, there are limits to our physicality, and I found those limits at Water Wars. Uh, those lim- I, I realized that they, I, I am not a, a 21-year-old counselor. I am a cresting 30 youth pastor that is getting a gut nowadays. But I tested those limits and I found I was coming up short. I realized very quickly the limits of my physicality that day. I wonder if for you, sitting here this morning, if you have ever found the limits of your faith, if you've ever found the limits of your spiritual faith in Christ, where you've had a moment where you've had maybe an extended period of suffering that you've been going through and it has tested your very limits all the way to the edge and you wonder if you can go further. In our text today, I want to show you two people who came to the edge of those limits and who Jesus called out to them to extend the limits of their faith to him. So you're in Mark chapter 5. If you'll look at verse uh, 21 with me. Well, actually, I'll give you a little bit of context because I know we haven't been in Mark. If you're visiting with us, we, uh, Pastor Kyle was supposed to do a second half of talking about deacons this morning. Um, but since you haven't been in Mark, I wanted to give you a little bit of an idea of what Mark is doing at this point in the book. Mark's goal in the first half of the gospel is to basically present to us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the mighty Messiah that has been prophesied to come. And he does that by presenting all of these shorter miracle episodes of of Jesus performing miracles all throughout chapters 1 through 3. If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, you see Mark's purpose very quickly. He He presents the gospel. He says, this is the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And basically from that point on, he wants to explain and wants to prove to you that he is. 
So through chapters 1 through the first half of chapter 3, you see all of these short miracles that Jesus does where Jesus is healing people and he is restoring fallen humanity. He is, be, he is casting out demons from people and defeating dark spiritual forces, having authority over them. He's forgiving sins, something that no human being can do. But Jesus is presented by Mark as one who is restoring peace between man and God. Mark shows us that Jesus is teaching on the law and Jesus offers a better pathway to God than just the law. Jesus goes about preaching about the kingdom, calling people to turn to God, saying that the kingdom of God is at hand and it is time to repent. And we see all of this taking place in the first couple of chapters in Mark. And when you get to the second half of Mark chapter 3, you get another cycle of this where Mark gives you more miracle episodes from chapters 3 all the way through, halfway through chapter 5, chapter 6, where Mark cranks the dial up a little bit more. And Jesus heals people, but he heals people of some crazy things. And Mark casts demons out of people, but he does so, he casts legions of demons out of one person. He has authority over the, the of physical nature where he calms a storm. And so Mark, all this whole time, is just trying to crank the dial up a little bit more through this second cycle of miracle episodes to show you, hey, this guy, Jesus, that you've been introduced to, he is the Son of God. He is the mighty Messiah. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your obedience. So end of chapter 4, Jesus calms a storm. Uh, it, beginning of chapter 5, Jesus heals this demon-possessed man. There's a legion of demons in him. And our passage takes place right in the middle of this second cycle where Jesus is going to do some things that are impossible to do because Mark is cranking up the dial. He's trying to show us that Jesus is truly a mighty Messiah. He is worthy of trust and obedience. That's where we get to Mark chapter 5, verse 21, if you will look there with me. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Mark shows us, to, to start off this morning, Mark shows us a man in a moment of crisis. A man in a moment of crisis. And we see at the beginning of verse 21, a large crowd gathers to see Jesus after crossing the sea. They had been across the Sea of Galilee. They come back in a boat. And this is pretty typical in Mark, where Mark is just showing us all over the place. There's these large crowds that are gathering to follow Jesus anywhere he goes. He crosses a sea, and when he hits shore, there's a crowd of people there wanting to see him, wanting to talk to him. So Mark introduces us to this man who amongst this crowd that has gathered about Jesus beside the sea there's a specific man that Mark wants to show us here. So who is this man? Who is 
Jairus. We are told by Mark three things about him. We are told about his position, we're told about his posture, and we're told about his problem. His position, his posture, and his problem. So what is his position? Well, it tells us in verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. You say, well, who is that? Because we don't have a synagogue, so we have no idea what kind of a person this is. Most likely, being a ruler of the synagogue, uh, Jairus was someone who may have administrated things at the synagogue. Um, So he might have kind of managed a lot of the supplies, ordered services, kept things organized. You know, um, somebody who is an organizational person who is administrating the things kind of in and around the synagogue. Now, some people say it could have been something like that. Others say, well, a ruler of the synagogue may have meant that he was possibly someone who supported the local synagogue financially. So essentially, he might have been somebody like a benefactor, um, a patron, somebody who is, is... financially supporting the synagogue. Either way, the thing to know about about Jairus being a ruler of the synagogue is he's an influential person. Life in this day revolved around the synagogue. That was the pinnacle of the Jewish culture at this time. You went to hear the scriptures. You went to gather with the other Jewish people So being a ruler of the synagogue, he was influential. He was probably very well-respected. And more than likely, he was a wealthier person in the town. Okay, Again, either being the fact that he was a benefactor of the synagogue or somebody who was helping being in charge of the synagogue was somebody who was probably being better paid, better well-off in that day. So he has a very high position. He's influential. He's in power. He is respected. And that's what what Mark wants us to see. Then we see his posture in verse 22. So Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly. Jairus fell at the feet of Jesus when he came to see him. For somebody like this, who had prestige and honor and reputation and status in the culture, it was not likely for somebody like that to fall at the feet of other people. It would have not been normal for a man of this status to fall at the feet of someone else, probably let alone somebody he didn't really know but had just heard about who was traveling around as a, as a traveling preacher, as, as a rabbi. Certainly that's respectable, but it wouldn't have probably been very normal for a guy like Jairus to do something like this. But it shows us the posture of his heart. He comes in humility. He comes not recognizing his own status, not recognizing his own influence, but placing everything, all of the honor, all of the respect on Jesus. And probably clues us into two things. One, his desperation, as well as probably his belief in Jesus, that Jesus to Jairus was worthy of honor and worthy of respect, was worthy of his trust, was worthy of humility to fall at his feet and to beg him to come help with his problem. 
So we see his position, we see his posture, and we see his problem. He has a daughter who is near the point of death. We're not necessarily told what condition she has. She may have been sick. Um, but at least at this point, all that we truly know, all that Mark really wants us, feels like he needs for us to know, is that she's at the point of death. There's not much more that is going to help this girl. And his request indicates that he believes Jesus can help him in this problem. I can't, I can't imagine what this father was going through. Some of us may have come to a point like that with a loved one, where it's to the point where I, I, will, I would do anything for help, grasping at straws, I don't know what to do. I don't think for Jairus this was an I'll just try anything approach and I'll just come to Jesus because I think that might work. Jairus sought Jesus out. He came to him when he heard he was coming back from across the sea and rather than trying anything else, he seeks Jesus out, leaves his home where his daughter is about to die and comes to Jesus as his only hope. He sought him out. The stories of Jesus must have had a significant impact on Jairus because it probably being involved with the synagogue, hearing a lot from other synagogue leaders about this person, Jesus, he may have had a little bit of a distaste for him as this rabbi who's going around teaching different things about the law, disregarding certain things that have become tradition. Jairus may have even been under pressure not to believe in Jesus. We don't know for sure, but culturally, a man of this kind of status who is this closely intertwined with the synagogue, probably with others that he, of his peers, Jesus was not looked on with a lot of respect, with a lot of honor. But Jairus does not care. He turns to Jesus as his only hope of saving his daughter. And that brings us to verse 24. In verse 24, we see a woman in extended suffering. So the passage begins with, and he went with him. So Jesus decides he's going to go with Jairus. He's going to go help heal his daughter. It goes on to say, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There's a lot of people crowding in and around Jesus as they go to travel to Jairus' home. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. What we see happening in verse 28 is what's called a Markin sandwich. That's the not so theological term for it. Um, but it is essentially in Mark, he does this several times where um, he gives us a story, Jairus going to heal his daughter. And in the midst of that story, we get another story sandwiched in the middle of that, okay? Uh, he does this on a couple, of occasion, a couple of occasions through the gospel. And the point of him doing this is that the point at which both stories coincide is the point of each, the contrast and the comparisons that are made are both being directed towards one particular point that Mark is trying to make in sharing this episode of Jesus with us. 
So it's a story within a story, and the point of both stories is found in the coinciding of the two. So what's this story? What takes place? Well, we see this large crowd that is mobbing Jesus as he follows Jairus. Again, this is probably something that was happening a lot in Jesus's ministry. It's why he was kind of off all over the place, more than likely, to get away from the crowds here and there, to, to pray, to teach his disciples, um, to be away from maybe the eye of, of religious leaders that would like to attack him and different things. Because we see a throng of people that are just crowding him as he begins to walk to Jairus's home. Interesting again, it's a crowd. A crowd was there when Jesus came across and where Jairus wanted to come see Jesus. A crowd is now again around Jesus, seeming to impede the progress a little bit, making it slower and slower to reach Jairus's home. And Mark presents to us a woman in extended suffering here. Mark tells us about a woman that's in need of Jesus. Well, who is this woman? We're told actually three similar things about her. Uh, maybe in a little bit of a different order, but we're told about her problem, her position, and her posture. Well, what about her problem? Because that's really the first thing that Mark tells us a little bit about. We see that she is physically diseased. She has a condition, a blood condition, that she has been dealing with for 12 years. So she has a chronic bleeding disorder that's been going on for 12 years. Mark tells us that she's basically spent all of her money, everything that she's had, on doctors, on physicians that have tried and tried and tried, but nothing has helped her. In fact, things have gotten worse for her. She's only gotten worse over the years. And Mark's point in showing this problem, especially talking about that no physicians were able to help her, is to point out to us subtly, this woman is beyond human help. There is no one here who can help her. Mark does this when he talks about uh, the Gerasene man, the man with the legion of demons, because he's breaking chains. And Mark specifically says, no one can bind him. The point there is again to just say, this person is beyond any kind of human intervention. This person is beyond over the edge of any kind of human help in their life. They are hopeless. So we see this problem, but then we see her position a little bit as well. Her position is probably indicated a little bit to us by Mark by the lack of her name. Jairus is named here. Means, again, he probably had influence. People knew who he was. This woman, we're not given her name. It's probably a little bit of an indication of her status, but if that's not enough, the physical condition that she had is an indication of her status in society. Her disease would have meant in that day that she was a social outcast. Because according to the law, if you turn back to Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 28, we see ritual purity laws in the, in the Old Testament, the Levitical law. Things having to do with discharges of blood and, and, and women on their monthlies. And we see these laws take form and take shape that basically meant um, with the discharge of blood, there is a ritual uncleanness that takes place. Now, for those of you who, have, who haven't studied Leviticus, ritual uncleanness, ritual impurity does not mean sin, okay? Ritual 
uncleanness, ritual impurity meant that you just need to do a few steps, go through certain ritual cleansing, potentially go out of the, the, out of the, the camp, out of the, the town for a little while and perform certain things and then you're ritually clean again, okay? It didn't meant necessarily sin, but it meant that there was an impure state before God. So anyone who touched blood would also become ritually impure. And because the, the steps that it took to go through ritual cleansing, some, occasionally it was many days or just a, a lot of inconvenience for you, meant that at people like this, other people would have stayed away from them. You didn't want to you know, come into contact with anybody that had this kind of physical condition because it would have meant you would have been unclean as well. She was continuously ritually impure. She probably couldn't bear children most likely. A lot of scholars would say that because of this physical condition, it, it meant that she wouldn't have been able to bear children, which meant it would have been very unlikely that she would have been married, which in that culture would have meant she was a social outcast. She was somebody on the fringes. She was a nobody in this society. And her posture is the same as Jairus. She hears the reports of Jesus. And as Jesus passes by, you, you can look with me there again at verse 27. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. We realized probably she was... Again, this crowd is surrounding Jesus, and I imagine when she heard, she's probably trying to push her way in throughout these people, um, probably, again, making them all ritually impure at that moment, but she has to see Jesus. And she doesn't care if she's seen, if Jesus even treats her, treats her like an individual, she has to come to Jesus as her only hope. And so she reaches out for his garment in the hopes that even just the, the purity of, of his garment and his power would make her clean. So notice her faith in Jesus is based on evidence she's heard from reports. Faith in, faith in Jesus is never just blind faith. She's heard reports. She believes the evidence of who Jesus is. All of these things that have been happening the calming of a storm, the healing of people, the casting out of demons. And she sees Jesus not just as any other human being, but as someone who is divinely enabled to help. The woman believed Jesus can heal her just by touching his clothes. And what's interesting is that both miracles that Jesus will do involve his touch. We're going to see in a minute, well, many of you probably know the story. I guess I'll give the spoiler. Jairus' daughter does die. And according to Levitical law, if you touched a corpse or if you touched someone, uh, if you touched blood or a discharge of blood, it made you unclean. But Mark makes a very obvious point here in both of these miracles that Jesus heals by touching. Jesus is the only hope. Jesus is the only one who is able to heal this woman, who is able to help Jairus. And it's not because he's just some great teacher. It's not just because he's a great man. It's 
Because he's the son of God. He is the Messiah. So Mark has shown us a man in a, in a moment of crisis. He's shown us a woman in extended suffering. But we conti- Mark continues on with the story of the woman here in verse 29. He says, And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? I, 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 I get the disciples here, right? You understand what's happening? There's a crowd of people around Jesus, people pushing in to see him. I mean, we don't know how many people, but it's enough to impede their progress to Jairus' house where they're just, you know, squishing their way through people. That You probably even see the disciples trying to, like, clear a path and get people away so that they can walk. And Jesus says, hey, who touched me? And so I was like, okay, hold on a sec. You see all, the, all these people around you, right? What do you mean, who touched you? Okay, because, I mean... It could have been any number of these. It's probably everyone has touched you. But there was a specific touch that Jesus knew had happened and that Jesus wants to bring a point to. He says, who touched me in verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. It's the same phrase. Falls down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, don't miss this, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The woman is healed and Jesus notices. And what does Jesus say healed this woman? It was not based on anything that she had done or hadn't done. It was not based on who she was or who she wasn't. It was solely based on her faith in Jesus that brought this healing. So it really begs the question for us, what is faith? What is faith like the kind of faith that this woman had that makes her well, that Jesus approves of? Hebrews 11.1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not just a hoping for the best. Whatever comes, I hope everything's going to be okay. That is not how Hebrews describes what faith is. And I don't think that's what faith is here as well. That Jesus commends. Faith is confidently placing your trust in something. And for this woman, it was placing her faith in the object of Jesus that he really was the one that could save her. He really was the only one who was her hope. The woman didn't see Jesus as just another person or else she probably would have thought that he would have been made unclean by her touching him. And so Jesus would then have had to go and be ritually cleansed and do all of that, right? The fact that she reaches out to Jesus tells us that in her mind, Jesus was much more than just any, any other ordinary human being. She had faith 
that Jesus was the Son of God and He has authority over all of His creation. She believed that Jesus was different and He really was who He said He was. See, faith is not just believing in Jesus. There's lots of people, even in the New Testament, who believed in Jesus, believed that He existed. Even the demons believe and they know who Jesus is, but that doesn't make it faith. Faith is not believing in Jesus, it is believing Jesus. What he says, who he is, trusting him at his word, placing your confidence, your reliance, your trust in him and him alone. That is the kind of faith that this woman had. That is the kind of faith that saves. Many today, maybe you're sitting here and you're dealing with extended suffering just like this woman. Yeah, can you imagine for years, 12 years, she'd had this condition? Away from everyone. Probably couldn't be with her family. No, no, no family of her own. Cast out by her society because of the unfortunate circumstances of her specific condition. Maybe today you're dealing with a form of extended suffering. Maybe it's a physical condition that's never gone away. Maybe it's the sting of a loss that continues to stay with you. Maybe it's the hurting consequences of, of years of poor life choices, and so you're, you're dealing with the, the, the consequences and the suffering that that involves. I don't know what you've come here today with as part of extended suffering just like this woman, but the question that is just like to this woman is, well, what is getting you through? Because faith in Jesus will. The message for those dealing with extended suffering just like this woman is this. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, even if that involves suffering. Looking to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know who can get you through periods of extended suffering? It's the one who witnessed suffering himself. The one who witnessed the suffering of this woman. The one who went through suffering for you and for me. I love the song Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And chorus is just this strangely beautiful thing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When your faith is in Jesus, everything else begins to fade away. That suffering that you are going through that is real, that is valid, that is difficult, feels like nothing when compared to the grace of Jesus in your life. And when you can look to him who's gone before you in suffering and who offers the hope of everlasting life to you through faith, that is what gets you through. That is what got this woman through. That's what brought her to Jesus and what healed her. You see this incredible thing take place. But Mark, as is his custom, 
is just very boom, 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 and moves right on and goes to verse 35. We've seen the woman's rescuer in verse 29 through 34, Jesus and her faith in Jesus, her true faith in Jesus. But then we see the man's rescuer in verse 35. It says, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Imagine, again, try to put yourself in the midst of like maybe being like one of the disciples there and watching that news land on this man while he's speaking and just knowing that maybe they might have made it if they weren't stopped by all of these people and Jairus could have looked at Jesus turning around and dealing with this woman and taking the time to talk to her who I, I can't say for sure. Maybe in his mind, he thought, she's a nobody. What, what are we doing? I need help. I asked you first. We see this information land on him, and they say, you know, might as well, you might as well come home. Don't, don't bother the teacher anymore with this. Again, showing faith that Jesus didn't really have power once the situation got to a certain point. But overhearing, verse 36, what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Notice what Jesus encourages Jairus to do. Jesus encourages his faith. Jesus was asking Jairus a very pointed question. Am I still worthy of your faith? Am I still worth it? Do you think that I can only do certain things or do you think I can do it all? Jesus wanted Jairus to level up his faith in him. Not that it was anything in Jairus or his own strength, like he needed to just try harder and do better and all of this. It was the fact that he needed to believe that Jesus couldn't just heal the sick, but that he could raise the dead. That he was more than what he thought he was that what Jesus says about himself in bringing life is actually true. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that. In the midst of a moment of crisis and everything just kind of drops and things become real. Um, I've told this story to some. Uh, but back in May, we were coming home uh, from my brother's wedding and uh, it was kind of a, a nightmare of a wedding to begin with because my entire family get, ended up getting uh, the stomach virus and was throwing up. Um, so we're, my brother's married. It, it worked out. We we're all there at the wedding. So it's, it's okay. But that week had taken place and we are, we're coming back through the airport in Boston. Um, and it's, you know, pretty routine. We've, we've flown quite a bit before. And so it was, it was about lunchtime. We were there, boarded, uh, got through security, um, and we kind of plopped down a little bit, had a lot of time before our gate. So I thought to go and uh, get us some lunch. So Alyssa and Eden, they kind of, kind of plopped down. Alyssa had made like this barricade of suitcases for Eden so she wouldn't leave that general area. And I go and I get that lunch for us. And while I'm waiting in line, um, I'm standing there, there's a, there's a guy in front of me, and this woman, like, 
runs up kind of to, to my right side, and she goes to the guy in front of me, and, and she says, very uh, uh, rushed, uh, do, you, do, you have a, do you have a wife and a daughter? They need you. And he, he looked around, and he must have been by himself, like a single guy. He's like, no, what are you talking about? And so she turns to me, and she says, do, do you have a wife and daughter? They need you right now. So I was like, well, I do have a wife, and I do have a daughter, so I guess that's probably me. Um, I'll, go, I'll go and check. I, I assumed that maybe Eden was just being difficult, as she can sometimes normally be, and, you know, Alyssa just needed help. So I got out of line, and I was like, man, I was going to get us lunch. I was almost at the front, like all this stuff. And I come over, and um, kind of, I, I began to, to walk back to where I knew Alyssa and Eden were sitting, and I saw this, this crowd of people, like right outside of security. And I walk over, I'm kind of looking, I think, okay, what's, what's going on here? And I keep walking, and eventually I see Alyssa's back. She's turned to me, and somebody is giving her a hug on the side. And I can tell Alyssa's in real distress. So at that point, I begin to run. And I run over to this crowd, and I, I see all these people kind of standing around, and I look down in the midst of that crowd, and I see Eden. And she is purple and green, She's convulsing. Her eyes are going back into her head. And all I heard, I ran to Alyssa and began to hug her, and she just said, Eden, Eden's hit her head. Eden's hit her head. Eden's hit her head. So I have no idea what's happening. I just look at my daughter on the floor. I have no idea what's going on. And I walk over, there's, there's some people that as soon as this had happened, Alyssa called out, and, and there's, nur- there's these nurses that just came out of the woodwork and came over and immediately began to help. And so they're on the floor, and they're, they're timing the, 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 what we thought was a seizure at that time and what's going on. And so they, they are able to turn her over on her side, and they, they, they tell me, Dad, you want to come? You hold her hand, okay? So I get down, and I, I begin to just, just hold my daughter's hand, and I look at her. I begin to try and talk, and eventually, the, the timer stops, and, and she closes her eyes. And she still doesn't have a lot of great color. Um, but the nurse tells me, they stop the clock, and they say, this is good. She's, she's falling asleep. She, she's exhausted at this point. It's only lasted a couple of minutes, so she seems to be doing okay. Um, but if you want to just stay here, hold on to her, keep talking to her. She might be able to hear you, all of this. And so I stand there, and I just, I just try and talk to my daughter. Um, I begin to think in my mind, you know, those, if you've ever been in a moment like that, everything becomes real so fast. Everything drops. Everything in this world just begins to kind of align into one perspective. And I, it begins to run through my head. I have no idea if I'm going to have a daughter by the end of the day. What if she's gone? What if she leaves this earth? What if I'm one of those stories? And so we come, come to the hospital. Well, paramedics had come. We're in the emergency, we're in the ambulance going to the hospital in the middle of Boston. 
Alyssa was able to be with Eden in the back, but I hadn't seen her wake up yet. I hadn't seen much as far as results. So I'm just sitting in the front of the ambulance, praying that, that people move out of the way in traffic so that we can get to the hospital. And the thoughts run through my head, is God worthy of my faith? Is God worthy of my trust? If he took my daughter away from me today, would I still trust him? Would my faith still be in him? And it wasn't until later when I was reading back through this passage that I, that I, I, I feel like this was happening to me. Jesus saying, do not fear, only believe. My faith can't be based on my situation because God is bigger than that. Jesus is bigger than that. He is worthy of my faith whether I have blessings or not. And so I wonder for you, maybe you've gone through something like this. Maybe there's been a moment of crisis. Is Jesus worthy of your worship, of your obedience, of your trust, of your life? Oh, thanks, Judy. Thank you. Probably need that. What if everything was taken away in a moment? Would God be still worthy of your worship even if the most precious things were taken? It's the story of Job, you realize. A lot of people say it's the story of suffering. It's the story of faith. What happened if God took every single thing away? Would he still be worthy of your worship? Would he still be worthy of your trust? Each of us has to wrestle with this question at some point in our lives. Will we listen to the call of Jesus, do not fear, only believe? Because the answer for Jairus is found in the next verses. You get to verse 37. It says, And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Or sorry, John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. This was clearly a funeral. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Right, ridiculous. What are you talking, how insensitive of you in this time? And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. You notice, notice the 12 of the girl, the 12 of the woman, 12 years of the woman. It's interesting literary work that Mark does here. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus takes three disciples in with him. He heals Jairus' daughter from the dead. And don't miss Mark's point. He displays Jesus' authority, authority over the largest and final enemy, death itself. The ultimate enemy of humanity, death itself, is thwarted by Jesus. With Jesus, there is hope that extends beyond this world, that extends way past what we can see. So what is Mark trying to teach us about Jesus here in Mark chapter 5? Well, really put simply, Jesus is worthy of placing your faith in. 
He has the authority over everything in this world as creator, as, as the one with authority over disease, over death. Jesus really is who he says he is. He is the son of God. Only God can touch unclean things and make them whole. Only God has the power over death. The object of your faith is extremely important. The stronger the object of your faith, the stronger your faith is. So I said we need to expand our limits imposed by ourselves of our faith. Because faith should not be based on our circumstances or who we are. It should be based on who Jesus is. And if you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that there is hope in him for everlasting life, then there will be no borders to your faith. So the question is really simple today. What are you trusting in to get you through the moments of crisis or the periods of extended suffering today? What are you trusting in, maybe as someone with influence, someone with status, someone with respect, or maybe someone as you feel maybe you are a nobody? For all their differences, both Jairus and the woman were willing to put everything riding on Jesus. Mark shows us Jesus is worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your belief in him. He will not let you down. The scriptures shout that God is worthy of our trust. His son is worthy of our faith. But so many of us have such a difficult time handing that over. Because not everyone's stories end like this woman and like Jairus. We're left to suffer in this life oftentimes. But Mark's point is that shouldn't change your faith. Faith is not an I'll give you this if you give me that. That's not faith. It's not true faith. Jesus is still worthy of your faith and your worship, even if his good plan involves you to continue in suffering. James 1, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations and trials. Because it produces patience, produces good things, produces strength. But I don't know where you are today. There may be a dark tunnel in your life right now. I'll give you one thing that I can't promise and one thing that I can as your pastor, I cannot promise you that in placing your faith in Jesus, he will miraculously transport you out of the tunnel. I can't promise that because that's not what the Bible promises. Jesus says, you will suffer if you follow me. You will be hated by the world if you follow me. Maybe like the woman in Jairus, you are, and that's amazing, and it's grace but I can't promise that. What I can promise as your pastor is that in placing your faith in Jesus, the dark tunnel that you may be in will have a light to lead you through it. it Jesus will lead you through that darkness and there is an end of the darkness in sight. There is a hope that you can latch onto because the hope of Jesus extends beyond this world. It extends beyond the point to when we perish. And our world cannot offer this. Our world cannot offer a light through the darkness. Our world cannot offer any light at the end of the tunnel. Only Jesus can.